0: This is Neil Erwitz, I'm the Director of External Relations here at the Center for a New American Security. And I'm here today with Dr. Patrick Cronin and Dr. Mira Rapp Hooper, two of the experts in our Asia-Pacific Security Program, and two of the experts uh, who wrote our new report, Beyond the Shanghai: The Challenge of China's Blue Water Navy. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, Thanks Neil.
0: So why is China expanding its Blue Water Navy writ large?
2: Although China has traditionally been a continental land power, it has since the 1970s and 1980s harbored a vision, um, a vision that was expressed by the late Admiral, or actually General Liu Huaqing. Uh, I say Admiral by mistake because he was the, 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 the general who had the vision for Blue Water Navy because the, the PLA Navy had very little power compared to the ground forces. And he saw over the coming decades uh, China gradually creating a blue water navy that could first control the first island chain, out to the second island chain, and then eventually conduct global naval operations anywhere. And that vision is essentially being executed by uh, the Chinese leadership. and. Now in 2017, we're right at the tipping point where China has reached numerical uh, parity with the United States Navy and is gaining quickly on catching up on the qualitative side uh, to try to push out the United States and and, and control, have more control over their near seas. There are three seas the Shanghai, the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, and the South China Sea. But by extending their power beyond those near seas, they're hoping to uh, have better control over their periphery. And this is about security, and now it's also about new missions, protecting their sea lines of communication, protecting their new economic investments uh, throughout the world.
1: I'll just, uh, add on to emphasize a couple of Patrick's points, which is to say that although uh, attention has really recently been drawn to China's Blue Water Navy as its naval capabilities do catch up to the United States quantitatively, this has been a long and slow and plotting process, uh, which the Chinese have executed very methodically. Um, And indeed, Chinese naval strategy, Chinese naval doctrine has evolved alongside these growing quantitative capabilities. Uh, So as we see China are really getting ready to put a blue water navy at sea, it's worth keeping in mind that there have been years of strategic planning um, and capabilities-based planning uh, behind these recent developments that we're all talking about today.
0: So um, broadly speaking, then, uh, are they in a position now to affirmatively challenge the United States and where the United States and China to get into a active conflict Uh, Would we, the U.S., be in a position to win that? And if so, how much longer are we going to have that advantage?
2: I think the short answer is no, and China is not looking for direct confrontation with the United States. They are looking, it seems, to be without peer, though, among regional neighbors. And they are over the long term looking to be able to not even be able to, uh, they're looking to be challenged uh, not even by another country like the United States over the long term. Um, Whether they ever get there, who knows? There are too many variables at play. The future economy, the future shipping industry, the future of technology, political will. Uh, So there are a lot of questions at play. But China is, right now in 2017, not only able to conduct global non-combatant evacuation operations in Yemen and Libya, something they've only been able to do for a few years, pretty soon they'll be able to uh, project power into the Indian Ocean as well as into the Western Pacific. And that is a new phenomenon. And that has implications not just for the United States Navy, but also for all of its regional neighbors. I'll
1: I'll just um, note that some of the challenges that come along with China's Uh, growing Blue Water Navy capabilities are a little bit counterintuitive, which is to say that when we talk about these growing capabilities, the fact that China will have upwards of 400 ships by 2030, the fact that uh, it will likely have four aircraft carriers uh, that may be at sea. We're still not talking about a China that has combat capabilities that it can deploy all over the world. We're talking about a Chinese Navy that is more capable um, in places like the Indian Ocean, certainly has the ability to sustain operations in the Middle East, um, near Africa, and in the Indian Ocean, but not a global navy on the order of the United States. That said, these blue water capabilities that give China the ability to operate over long distances are also give it the ability to execute operations near to its shores. So as China grows its capabilities, becomes more able to operate in places like the Indian Ocean, indeed, the countries that may be the most concerned about these developments are those who are very close to China, the Taiwans, the Japans, uh, who have long been thinking about the possibility of conflict with China and are now concerned that these new capabilities can be turned towards longstanding missions.
0: And if I could step back for a moment then. Why are they doing this? If they're not going to be able to challenge and direct conflict, what is the purpose of their being able to uh, to project power? Especially given that these, you know, these aircraft carriers and other ships are not cheap.
2: Several drivers, Neil. First, history. I mean, history is alive in Asia and in China. They felt the century of humiliation. They felt like they'd been victimized by other powers both in the region and here in the United States. And as a result, they have wanted to project forward a defense of their periphery. Traditionally, they've done this mostly on land, but now they want to project it in their seaboard direction out in the east and south China Seas in particular and to create a blue water navy that takes on what uh, Hu Jintao called the new historic missions of protecting sea lines of communication because now China is an integral part of the global economy. So the second reason is really the fact that China's economic rise has led to the need to defend its economic investments and resources. The resources flowing into China are essential and they are potentially interdicted in uh, conflict by the United States or other countries. These sea lines of communications uh, have to go through critical choke points like the Malacca Strait and other straits And they want to be able to project this. So that's a third reason in addition to protecting their economy. It's really being able to protect specific conflict choke points that could be critical in a crisis.
1: Just to put a fine point on that, uh, China is not yet in a in a place where it can be enabled the world over in terms of its blue water navy, but it is an increasingly major power on the world stage, and it does not want to be constrained or hemmed into its near seas. And that's a lot of what we're seeing.
2: And of course, the scenario that has often come up in the previous decades has been the Taiwan scenario. That continues to be probably the number one planning scenario for the Chinese. So if you're able to project a, a navy beyond the first island chain out beyond Singapore and into the Indian Ocean <clears throat> into the western Pacific um you are able to therefore potentially stop the United States from resupplying a Taiwan that could be under duress and that's a classic scenario uh, for military planners in the China Chinese uh, the People's Liberation Army of China
0: Given that uh, it sounds like what you've uh, laid out here is not necessarily a positive for the United States, is there anything the U.S. and its allies can do to uh, arrest this forward momentum uh, on China's
2: Blue Water Navy? There is, and, and um, there's both competition and cooperation with China, actually, they, we talk about in this report. and. Mayor, I'm happy to talk about some of these recommendations first, if you want. We have in this report uh, recommendations for the United States but also recommendations for allies and partners. And the recommendations for the United States start with the very basic premise of, look, you have to take this seriously now. Even though we're thinking out to 2030, that's just around the corner in terms of history. And China's already rapidly achieving these capabilities. And uh, in a very short period, the United States' credibility and power projection we're going to be taken into question, increasingly into question. So take this seriously now because those decisions today matter. Stay forward and firm in Asia. That'll be controversial because this will be more contested. It may be more politically difficult to stay forward, both domestically for the United States, but also for allies and partners who feel pressure from China. For um, should-
0: instance, the South Korean, the new South Korean president who's probably— uh, who- seems to have more of a dovish approach.
2: And it's not, It's it, yes, but it's not even just being dovish, it's a matter of being pragmatic about how do you balance your interests with your major trading partner in China and your major security partner in the United States? That becomes more problematic as China grows, puts more pressure and coercion on its neighbors. So shoring sure up maritime domain awareness, uh, uh, a common operating picture, something that uh, mirror and others have written about here, at great length, very important still for just transparency of what's happening to share that information picture. Advancing, though, into new areas like strategic uh, uh, sort of anti-submarine warfare, not a new area for the United States, but vis-a-vis China, it is a relatively new area. We haven't really had to think about this for some time since the Cold War at the level that we're talking about in this report. This is not just a naval exercise. When we think about the PLA rocket force and their projection from land-based forces Um, All the way, they wrap around not only the Sanhai, the three seas, but they go into the Bay of Bengal, even now with their current uh, DF-21 missiles. But in their extended range, they go right up to the Arabian Gulf. So if you just wrap a a huge uh, swath of territory in the land um, from the Persian Gulf all the way up to the Yellow Sea, China right now has the ability to reinforce anything they do with air and naval forces they can project with missile forces. And that's what that's what forces us off. So the United States has to take this seriously and build a sufficiently sized and capable joint naval force uh, as well. And we're gonna have to innovate because we're gonna need new technologies, for instance, to deal with the, the growing missile threat. So those are things that yeah. the U.S. can do in particular.
0: And that, that was one thing I wanted to follow up on. And apologies, Mayor, if I, if I cut you off that. um if our Navy is based so much around the carrier and if we play in China's backyard, they have their carrier killers, their A2AD,
2: how do we get around that? Well, um, and, you know, the, the A2AD, the any access area denial, we, we use that term in this report, although it's it's somewhat uh, out of favor right now in inside Washington, D.C., partly because it seems like a defeatist term. It sounds like the Navy, the U.S. Navy and its allies doesn't have the capability. I think there's a great determination inside the US Navy and inside the administration to continue to be able to project power no matter where we need to project it. And there's, a, there's an equal determination in China to stop that. Yeah. Um, so um, that's why uh, this is a very tricky, delicate competition. We don't want to have an arms race, but at the same time, we do need new technologies. We do have to innovate and that's expensive. Innovation is very expensive. Um, but it will be more expensive to find yourself in 15 years' time not being able to, to conduct defenses the way you think you should be able to to protect your interests. And the people who will really lose out will be uh, allies who are counting on the United States being working on their, on their side to project a, a balance of power that's favorable in the first place to deter war from ever breaking out and, and to deter aggression and coercion that's the real reason we're trying to project power forward. it's not to actually wage the war but if you don't have the capability that's credible um, to go into harm's way when you have this onslaught of accurate missiles long-range precision strike missiles that china will have then you will not have a credible defense and china will know it and they'll push japan out of the way and isolate them and they'll they'll dominate their neighbors in southeast asia and if china wants to cooperate there's no problem the problem is if china doesn't have any counterweight and pressure on it to cooperate fairly, then we're talking about essentially hegemonic regime that is up to the whims of China. And that's sort of 1800s Asia at the moment, and that's a a vision that a lot of people fear. It's not one that we see out of Beijing today, they're talking very high-minded about global norms and about upholding the, the global economy. Those are good yeah. things, but we can't be sure about the future. Yeah,
0: and they'll, they'll do it until they, they don't do it. <laughs> the same thing they said about the problem with mutually assured destruction. It works until it doesn't.
2: Yeah, precisely. We don't, and, and so you can't, you can't have your defense uh, predicated on a hope. You have to really take it into your own hands, and that's where the US Navy, working with allies and partners, need to do more planning and analysis about the implications of this Blue Water Navy capability of China, We need to broaden support. Uh, We need to deepen our capabilities with selective allies and partners. We can work in a number of ways to uh, project a loose, but effective web of security partnerships and alliances that offer a a useful counterweight so that China doesn't feel like it has unchecked military power that it could just use uh, against the interests of the region and against the interests of the United States.
1: I'll just add to that the fact that when it comes to these treadlines in China's naval growth, uh, some stark realities are actually quite clear, uh, which is to say that, you know, barring some major economic event or some uh, major disruptive technology that the United States happens upon in the next couple of decades, China absolutely will surpass the United States quantitatively um, in terms of the number of uh, major surface combatants it has at sea, and it will be catching up to the United States qualitatively. And even if Um, this current administration manages to invest in its Navy to build up to a 350-ship Navy um, over the course of the next many years, the United States will still not have local superiority when it comes to China's Navy based on its deployment schedules um, and based on its many other commitments around the world. So there is no question that the U.S. Navy must rely on allies and partners in new and innovative ways um, if it is to take along Long term active view to this type of strategic competition. Um, it's worth remembering in all this that the United States founded its alliances in East Asia after World War II with a keen eye to geography and the geographic advantages that some of its allies had. That includes uh, certainly the Philippines, that includes Japan, uh, that includes Korea. And those geographic advantages matter a great deal when it comes to thinking about counter A2AD strategy. They also matter a great deal when it comes to thinking about things like maritime choke points. So geography in Asia and the role that U.S. allies play remain more important than ever.
0: Well, here's hoping we don't have to talk about this again, but I'm fairly certain we will. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Thanks, Thank you. Mary. Good
1: to see you.